So welcome to a festive edition of On The Continent. I'm Dotton Adebayo. And I'm Andy Brassel. On today's OTC, what, with a new year just around the corner, we're looking back at what I think is safe to say is, uh, was a tumultuous year for European football, where each of our regular On The Continent pundits will join us to look back on some of the continent's biggest moments. We're joined first by Lars Sievertsen. Hi, guys. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Andy, you haven't got a clue what we were talking about, but put it this way. Um, if you're talking about Santa Claus, which team would he play for? I know the answer to this. Is it Burdeglim? I know. I know. When, no, you, I think you'll find. Well, I mean, Dalton <laughs> might have a different answer. You go first, Dalton, and then no, I'll no, pop you, in with you, it. You know the answer. Okay. Lars. So what, what I'm immediately going for, uh, it might not be what you had in mind, but there is a there is a club. Um, uh, well, there's a club called FC Santa Claus, isn't there? Uh, but I was I was going to say Rovaniemi, which is of course where where they're from, FC Santa Claus. Uh, but he could also play for the team Rovaniemi. They, they do have a team up there called Rops. There are some options, but but what we need to establish is Santa is very much from Rovaniemi in northern Finland. Now you, of course, with your Swedish background, might have a different take on this. I, I was thinking that he'd play for Gdansk because he is. North Polish, isn't he? Oh my God! <laughs> oh wow! There's no, there's no coming back from that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm listen, he is from Rovaniemi. I'll get like angry Finns will mysteriously appear outside my house with pitchforks if we don't establish that he is from Rovaniemi in northern Finland, and there is actually a football team called FC Santa Claus. There actually, at least it used to be. Pitchforks rather than shovels? Okay, fair enough. But we're talking about football... Torches as well. Ice picks. <laughs> <laughs> talking about football from the far north. Uh, this season has seen the remarkable return of the one and only greatest Scandinavian footballer ever, in my view, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, playing in Italy. Yeah, that's that's what we're doing in this episode, aren't we? We're looking at like what one big thing that was that really dominated the year, and there's been a couple of things for me. Obviously, Border Glimpse, obviously the the year of the year of Erling Haaland, but we've spoken a lot about those things on the pod, and I think now that the year is kind of winding down, there is one other like massive, massive sort of landmark vaguely nordic related story that I don't think we've maybe spoken as much on the pod about as we could have. Uh, which is, of course, the the miraculous, and I do mean miraculous, and quite extraordinary return of of Zlatan Ibrahimovic to to Milan and to the European limelight. And I want to put my cards on the table here. Uh, I did not think this was going to work out. I, I was certainly not anywhere close to in the way it has. I didn't think it was a good idea. And and the reason I didn't think it was a good idea is, is twofold. First of all, I actually watched quite a bit of MLS, uh, and, and his highlight reel from his two seasons in MLS is amazing. Uh, in his time with the LA Galaxy, he scored something like 53 goals in 58 games. And some of them were some of his most spectacular, which with Ibra is saying something. But when you watch the full games, he didn't look like a guy who was playing, playing in the wrong league, really, in spite of the highlights. You know, he looked slow. He looked cumbersome. Uh, if you could get the ball to him within 30 yards of the goal, he might score somehow. But he also spent a lot of his time sort of trudging around, you know, arms on hips, looking a bit tired. And he looked to me like a 
37, 38 year old superstar who was just squeezing the last bit of football left in his body in MLS, which we've seen a ton of times before. He didn't look like someone who needed to come back to Europe ASAP because he was needed there. And then off the pitch, of course, as well, there was an increasing amount of nonsense. Uh, he sort of became this sort of farcical figure almost. He, he went on talk shows and said things like a World Cup without me wouldn't be a World Cup. And you know, um, he, on Jimmy Kimmel, he was saying, like, I know there are some earthquakes in Los Angeles, but this is me coming to Los Angeles. And like, he was all these sort of things. And he, he kept like his Twitter account went wild and he became obsessed with lions. And it was just incredibly tedious. And you know the line from Star Wars about Darth Vader being more machine than man. I think Ebra <laughs> was becoming more a meme than a man. You know, his sort of, he became a parody of himself. And the combination of this thing, this increasingly ludicrous figure who on the field could do extraordinary things he still had the odd overhead kick or volley in his locker but a lot of the time he started to look his age a bit as well I think is he going to come back to Serie A and, 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 and still be Ibra and still going to boss it that didn't make sense to me but of course I've made the I've committed you know the, the, the dumbest sin a sort of football person can do which is to underestimate Ibrahimovic which is throughout his career you must never do because he will he will always find a way of of surpassing expectations and, and what he's been doing this season is, is truly extraordinary on the other hand Lars I expected him to be a success in Milan you did but just not in the way that he actually has been I knew they were bringing him back for a reason and that reason was to do the bit sort of behind the behind the meme behind the the superhero facade behind the role that he's playing the fact that as we've said time and time again on the pod he's fantastic at, at working with young players um, Milan had a, a fairly inexperienced squad um, certainly in terms of what we're used to seeing from from them and that he was someone who could really I think um, motivate protect um help and guide the younger players something that he did really brilliantly at Paris Saint-Germain he never really gets that that much credit for that his symbolic value and his his value in the dressing room um, was more than it was on the pitch and I think you saw even in the early weeks what he got out of uh, Rafael Leal who at that point was looking like an expensive bust having been bought from Lille at a great expense Um, and the fact that he started turning around was clearly an instant Zlatan effect. Um, but you look at, you know, his, his, his first goal back when he, he scored against Cagliari um, at, at the start of January. And you thought, well, oh, this is nice. You know, he's got the four decades record, the record of having scored in uh, the, the 90s, the noughties, the 10s and the 20s. But never, never did I expect the goals to come in the way, the, the way they have had. I mean, Lars, could we maybe make the point perhaps that, LA, with no disrespect to the MLS, maybe worked out as a little career break. The moment, yes. the moment that he could get over his serious injury, um, which is again when we factor this into the story and how good he is at thirty nine, that he's had a cruciate knee ligament injury in in the last three four years, and he's recovered from that. It is extraordinary, right? Yeah, I think you're spot on, Andy. Uh, and he did say that uh, earlier this year. 
that, 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 well, this is Ibra, so, you know, you take it with a pinch of salt, but he was saying, oh, United wanted me to stay, and, you know, Mourinho kept calling me and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but he, but after his injury, he said he wanted to go to, to the US, at least partially, well, he said, because he wasn't confident he could do the things anymore. Like, he didn't know if his body would, would respond. And I do think for Ibra, the idea of just being a bit part player is it just wouldn't work. You know, he needs to be the center, the center of everything. And he maybe wasn't fully confident that he could be at a top European club anymore. And, um, but after a period in, in MLS, he said, yeah, I felt alive, you know. And I definitely think going to somewhere where the standard was slightly lower and, and where he could get away with having, you know, prolonged spells in games where he didn't move around that much. <laughs> sort of almost, I, I would never suggest that Ibra has huffed and puffed and sort of looked out of breath, but, you know, he didn't look like the sort of nimble ballet dancer type of giant man that we were used to seeing. But he's gradually built himself up, and when he came back, you know, he he looked straight at home, and it it is remarkable and unusual to see a centre forward who looks in better nick physically at thirty nine than he did at thirty seven. Like that, that I, I can't remember that ever happening before. Now, what you have to remember with Ibra is he 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 looks after himself. You know, he's he doesn't drink. You know, he eats well. He's very very focused on on making sure his body's in a good place. He he takes him. I mean, as much as he can seem like a like you know, the whole branding operation around him makes him seem like a parody of himself. But he's a very, very serious sportsman. Uh, but you're you're completely right, Andy. About I think his character in that dressing room is so important. As one great example that I like is that Ante Rebic, the Croatian attacker, said in an interview that uh, before the game against Juventus, Ibra had said like just before they went on the out of the dressing room, he was like, "All right, I'm going to go out and show Juventus how to play football," <laughs> which is sort of like such an Ibra moment. You can just imagine seeing that in the dressing room but I think in a team like Milan's like almost the whole squad like in the squad there's only a handful of players who are over 25 like there's so many players who are if not teenagers then in the, their early 20s there's almost no players in there who have ever won anything like there, there's not a lot of you know experience of being successful at the highest level so having someone with Ibra's you know incredibly broad shoulders you know uh, and you know both literally and metaphorically, who can go in there and, and carry that and, and show them the way. And he can say something like that before a game against Juventus and it doesn't sound ridiculous because it is plausible that Ibra's going to go and show them a thing or two. And it gives everyone confidence. It must do. However, however much he looks after himself and eats well and doesn't drink and stays physically fit, he's always going to be under par compared to some of those youngsters that you've uh, mentioned. He, he, at 13, you know, I, I've been 39, and trust me, <laughs> however much... <laughs> I know it's hard to believe, but however much you want to keep playing five-a-side, the youngsters um, running rings around you, you know, it's a shot. And I just wonder how much of his success this season is actually due to the, the, the mental... Zlatan Ibrahimovic, very, very strong character mentally. And I wonder if that is what's carrying him through and making him uh, such a success. I certainly think his single-mindedness is a huge part of it, but that's also a huge part of why he's such an, in such extraordinary nick at 39, because he doesn't allow himself to be distracted, and God knows there are enough distractions out there for a you know, global superstar footballer. He, you know, he still works as hard as anyone to, to stay in this shape. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't come cheap looking like that. You, know, you have to sacrifice a lot in your life. And he's I've never been afraid of making those sacrifices. And I think you're right. And I think, you know what, in a strange way, I think the sort of slight waning of his physical prowess 
if I can say that, with him sort of suddenly turning up behind me and <laughs> roundhouse kicking me in the head. It's just frightening to talk down Zlatan, you know, paint the Zlatan on the wall and he will appear, as I believe the saying goes. Uh, but, but it, it, you know, I think the fact that he slowed down a bit might have helped him because in his mid-career, you know, there was a bit of the Paul Pogba's about him in the sense that he could do almost anything on the pitch. And that's because of that, he kept trying to do absolutely everything. He was a player who both wanted to be part of the build-up play because he was so skillful and had such a vision. You know, he was someone who both wanted to play the ball out wide to the winger and he wanted to put the cross in and he wanted to head the cross home. And it's really hard for a player to do all those three things at the same time. Whereas actually now that he can't run as much, he's much more focused on being on being a predator in the box and, and doing his stuff back to goal and holding up play the way he can as a target man. It's, it's almost sharpened his focus a little bit and, and, and made sure he focuses on certain things that he can still do extraordinarily well. And, and he's not fast. But he's so strong still, and you, you're not going to lose that anytime soon. And he's still got his extraordinary touch. So you have this sort of, okay, he's 39, but you can sort of blast the ball towards him at any height, at any speed, and he will, he will trap it and, and keep it for a while and hold players off. So he's, he's an amazing sort of reference point in the Milan attack, even if he's not, you know, there's some traditional jobs for a center forward he can't really do anymore. But he is a super useful player. I mean, this season, he started the season, he scored 10 goals in six games in the league. That's bizarre. Like, he's complete. You, you can make a real case, I think, for him being one of the one, sort of one of the best center forwards in the world right now. I mean, if there's a game tomorrow, he's very high on your list of guys who you want in your team. Which at 39 is incredible. I can't. I can't think. I think it's. I think it's pretty much unprecedented. I certainly can't think in the modern era of a 39-year-old who is not just playing, but is a regular, is a, is a star player, is a load-bearing, you know, player in a team that's going for the title in the top five leagues. I've gone through this in my head. I can't think of any really other examples. I'm happy to be put wrong by people with more knowledge of history than myself, two of which might be on this on this pod. But I can't think of any, any other example of that. It's completely extraordinary. I guess the real question is what he does in 2021, fellas, because um, long may the revival continue. I wonder, we talked about the, the the little break in LA. I wonder if the injury, and I don't think there's any such thing as a good muscle injury when you're 39, but I do wonder mm. if it came at a, a good time, allowed him to have a little bit of a break. He's almost had a, a mini preseason while he's, he's he's been off, and especially going into the winter break, I think that'll be quite handy. So... I think there is a chance of him leading Milan to the title. The real question is, does he come back for Sweden at 2020 in summer 2021? And and, and this is fascinating. And going into the Euros, the dynamic now is totally different to what it was uh, going into the World Cup in, in 2018. I mean... He even said, I mean, back then, you know, he was over in America, you know, pretending to be a lion and sort of going on talk shows and talking about how the World Cup was nothing without him. But but the Swedish national team at the time, they were kind of fine without him. You know, they'd beaten Italy in the playoffs and it almost... I, the team kind of almost made more sense uh, without him. And there was almost a sense of relief that he'd, he'd moved on because it wasn't the Zlatan show. Now it is so different. He said recently they missed 
he misses playing for the national team and that if they were to contact him and ask him if he'd come back, he'd said he'd think about it. Now, of course, uh, that's a very Ibra way of putting it, but it's a very different tone to the one he had two years ago. And uh, the Swedish national team coach has said that since Latin, uh, I, I have the quote here, when it comes uh, to playing for the national team, I understand as Latin has now spoken in a different way than what has been said previously, that means it would be natural for us to establish some kind of contact going forward to discuss matters. Now, there were some bridges that were burned when he left and have been sort of sort of casually put a fire and put a flame since then. And there's some diplomacy needs to happen for this to, to come back, but it just makes a ton of sense. And he would fit into the team, I think. They need a striker. They could really do with a target man there. And like Andy said, he's such a good... He's such a he has, at least has been such a positive presence at Milan. I don't think they're worried about him overshadowing the team and causing chaos in the same way perhaps they, they were before. So it makes total sense for him to come back. Lars, Hammerby, Hammerby, Hammerby. <laughs> That's what I'll say for now. Thank you very much. Anytime, man. With a look back at the first stage of the Champions League and a look forward perhaps at the knockout stage, let's speak to Miguel Delaney. Hi, Miguel. Hi, guys. Is it all about Bayern this year and maybe next year as well? Um, well, I think next season's a little bit, sorry, next year is a little bit harder to say because I think the nature of this campaign has disrupted a lot. And you can even see that in, in Bayern's usual supremacy of Germany, where they're kind of dropping points and losing games in the manner that you wouldn't have seen, well, especially not towards the end of last season. Um, but even, even allowing for that, I still think they are Europe's standout team with Liverpool maybe at, close to their level or potentially at their level. I mean, Miguel, it's a discussion that we've had before on and off the pod about... Um, you know, it's it's difficult to uh, assess points of history while they're still going on. You know, you almost need to have a bit of a distance from an era. But that Real Madrid team that was the first team to go back to back in the Champions League era and actually went on that won um, three in a row, that they don't feel like a historically great team. But could this Bayern team feel a bit different? I mean, even if it ends up that they only win that one title in 2020 in extraordinary circumstances, it felt like they um, defined a time and they dominated in the way that few Champions League winners do these days. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, I think, because the way they played and even the specific alterations that Flick and uh, his assistant, Danny Roll, made a team, made to the team, they, they felt like they typified the dominant style of football as much as anywhere. Whereas Real Madrid did, didn't feel like... I mean, it's, it's an interesting one with Madrid because, I mean, when we look back in history, and this is actually, intriguingly, this is actually true of the 1950s Madrid as well. When you look back from the vantage point of history to see three European Cups in a row, five European Cups in a row, or four in five years, it, it does look incredible. It looks, wow, that, that, that must have been the kind of the, the elite team of the area. Then you look a bit closer, and in 1950, say they only won two. Madrid only won two league titles in those five, and the the, the recent Madrid only won one league title as part of that run. And I think that's why Bayern almost stand out in that regard because 
they've combined in, in that one season in, with that treble, they've combined all the different elements, you know, the ability to master these knockout ties and sudden death eliminations with the kind of the long run of a season. And I think it's why, why, as you say, that Madrid, it doesn't feel like they've typified an ear in that or they weren't one of the great teams because of what the modern Champions League is, which is basically that, I mean, when it gets to the knockout stages, it is essentially a group of about nine to 10 super clubs crashing against each other. You often only need kind of two good performances to actually win it. And it's why, despite the prestige of the Champions League, the actual meaning uh, of of its victory isn't quite the same thing, and it's why I, I like I don't want to say you can fluke three champions in leagues in a row, but <laughs> there's a lot more luck that that can influence its victory than in a league campaign. Um, in in saying all that, I do think Bayern are are better set basically to do back to backs, uh, but also not just in the Champions League, back back to backs in terms of doubles, uh, winning the win the Bundesliga and the Champions League at the same time. And if they do that, then we are talking about um, one of the great teams. But I think they already have a start. I think you're right. They, 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 there's something about them that feels more complete than what Real Madrid were. And it's partly an age thing as well, isn't it? Um, if, if you look at the players that, that Flick has brought through, his way of relating to the players, the fact that he's a player whisperer and a tactician at the same time. But I think it's when you look at a set of players who are of an age growing together like Kimmich is already a leader but then you've had the emergence of Gnabry Goretzka and his massive muscles which are the biggest part of the Bundesliga and possibly the Champions League in this year underpinned by those older more experienced players like Neuer Lewandowski and the players actually like Müller and Boateng who've been completely renewed yeah, um, I think that's a very interesting thing with this Bayern as well, in that it feels like they've almost had an under-the-radar um, successful transition. Because like, obviously, if you say, look at, like, look at some of their main European rivals in that sense, Manchester City or Liverpool, or not Liverpool, sorry, Manchester City or Barcelona, they have been very consciously trying to manage the transition for, from one era to another. Whereas with Bayern, they almost did it without any noticing. And that's partly, I suppose, because they had two years where, yes, they still won the, won the Bundesliga, I suppose, because of the nature of their superiority at the time. But in a European sense, when they had kind of figures like James Rodriguez, without, without meaning to dismiss him, but that masked the fact that actually they were, they, they were successfully transitioning from the kind of the, the Robin Ribery generation to now the current team, which, like many of the great sides of the past, still has some of the totems. In this case, I mean, like, say, with Ferguson in the 90s, or sorry, with Ferguson in the 90s and 2000s, Giggs and Skull were still ever present despite many transitions of team. By the same token here, Neuer and Boateng are still ever present despite another transition of team. But, like, other key players have gone, which kind of marks the difference from one era to the next. Uh, and I am intrigued by the comparison that you <clears throat> made or that you brought Liverpool and Bayern together in a sort of a comparative conversation. Uh, I wonder, when we look at them coached for coach, then I'm presuming we would have to say that Jurgen Klopp, the coach of the year, FIFA coach of the year, would have the edge over uh, the Bayern coach flick. But when we're talking player for player, do we go the same way? Uh, given that Lewandowski was the player of the year, FIFA player of the year, I wonder if you match the teams up. And you might disagree with what I said about the coaches, but if you match the teams up, are, are 
is Bayern, does Bayern have the edge over the Liverpool team? No, I actually think, because I've been thinking this a lot of the last two years, given, well, the last few months, given the two most recent champions. I think Liverpool have the better first 11, but Bayern maybe have a stronger overall squad with that kind of translating maybe. In terms of coaching, I mean, there was a lot of kind of derision the other night that um, the FIFA Best Award was given to Klopp rather than Flick. And yeah, on one level, I can actually understand that because obviously, I suppose, this Liverpool team is very much, it's very the very visible product of five years of Klopp work. Like, it, it is built this image. Whereas with Flick, because he's been an assistant and hasn't really had a full coaching role in that one until now, it doesn't feel it's as visibly his work. I mean, it, it's, more, it's more, it almost seems, even though he's obviously done extremely well, it almost feels like he's come into the situation, made a few tweaks and facilitated things, rather than this being kind of like a team he's built in that way. And I think if you, if you speak to people around Byron as well, they very much credit his assistant, Danny Rowe, huge influence in this, particularly in terms of, which is one of the biggest differences of Byron, something that really changed their season last year when they went from this kind of atrocious spell of form um, under Kovac, and also at the start, under Flick for a while as well, um, to this suddenly this incredible run of wins where what everyone, everyone around the team would talk about is, is their work in terms of uh, pressing against the ball or they're, they're, they're basically they're, they're working winning it back, essentially, um, which almost marks an evolution in pressing in that way in itself. And a lot of people cr- very much credit Raw with that and being absolutely influential in that change. And really, I think you have to look at the fact that he's helped those players evolve as well. I mean, you look what's happened with uh, Alfonso Davies, which was initially um, a Niko Kovac idea to to stick him at left back. I think basically because they were so short of players through injuries at the time. But the fact that uh, Hansi Flick had had seen enough that um, he felt he could work on him there. The fact that David Alaba, that facilitated him going to left centre-back where he had the, the season of his life. I think you look at these little changes and the fact that the players have responded to those. If the players are responding to you at Bayern, I mean, they had enough of Guardiola at a certain point. They had enough of Ancelotti pretty quickly to the extent that they were putting on their own training sessions. They never really connected with Kovac. So it's maybe not just the the age of the players. It's maybe not just the fact that most of Flick and his coaching team's innovations of of work so far, but is it is that feeling of potential going forward that they could get better and better and better. But I do just wonder further down the line once we get post Flick, which we will do at, at, at some point. You mm. know, coaches don't stay in jobs seven, eight, nine years these days, in, in, unless it's a near miracle like like Klopp at Dortmund. Could we see? Bayern as being a project for Klopp at some point and could we see um, Flick as being a bridge between the previous sort of Bayern football and what could be the Klopp brand of uh, football at Bayern? I I do wonder about that. I mean, whether whether the romantic in Klopp would want to go for it uh, given the clubs he's been at and given that they, I mean, mean, given Liverpool's history, they're not really underdogs, but in a financial sense, I suppose there was a certain um, gap to bridge uh, and I've always been curious. I've, I've always, it's always why I don't think Klopp has ever been that interested in Real Madrid, just because the profile of club. But then who knows? After kind of ten, fifteen years, maybe Bayern will be appealing. But uh, the interesting thing about Flick in that regard as well is that we actually don't. In fact, think thinking through the history of kind of Champions League winners and European coaches in that profile, the only 
um, manager who I can think of who didn't previously have managerial experience and went straight into a big job and basically just stayed there for a very long time is Miguel Munoz at Real Madrid, who was like, who went from being a player to being coach and then staying for a decade and winning nine titles out, out of 10. Beyond that, oh, I mean, and, and this is partly to do with the kind of modern game and, and modern kind of management parameters as much as anything. Most of these coaches seem to basically last three, four years. I mean, with Guardiola being the ultimate example and then having to move on because of this classic maxim that, or what you might call the Ferguson maxim, that the most you can have with any, with any one team is a three, four year cycle. Uh, so it would be interesting to see how Flick, how long Flick lasts in that regard. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, well, I mean, uh, to be honest, the, 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 the relative drop-off this season, I would put down to the congestion of the schedule as much as anything else. But who knows? Maybe, maybe in the long term, with, with the advantage of a, a bit of remove, maybe it'll be a, spine of a, a sign of a little bit of a drop-off in Bayern as well. But that's going to be one of, one of the interesting things to see over the next few months. And, and actually... I mean, I know this season is so engaging, obviously, for so many reasons. Uh, but I'll be interested to see what basically, basically when the dust settles and when next season the calendar sort of returns to normality because it won't be as crunched a season. Uh, what happens? Will a lot of the kind of the, old, the recent realities begin to reassert themselves? Tis the season to be jelly, obviously. <laughs> um, and will... We'll... Bayern win the European Cup again? Will they? Um, or do you get Champions League? I'm old school, you know. The one thing I've always thought in that regard actually has a bit of a tangent. The European Cup is a much more fitting name than the Champions League in, in these days. Even, even though it's been the Champions League has become so associated with this kind of modern top four group era, the European Cup is just a. <laughs> it's a cup, and it's a, yeah. it's a collection of your best teams, exactly. rather, rather than just champions. Um, well, in saying that, I did a piece in this last week after the draw, and I think this. Se- I think because of the nature of this season, because the congestion is so getting to people, I think this could be one of those years where, and going against recent run, I suppose, it won't be for a team winning a double or a treble or involved in a title race. I think we could go back to the kind of mid two thousands when it will actually suit teams that aren't in a title race. Like, if you remember, like, when Juventus, or sorry, when, when Milan and Liverpool won it in, in the mid-2000s in the mid and played in the final twice, it was both when they were actually well off the pace in the league. Uh, and it was almost like because they were off the pace, but relatively secure in the top four, they were able to concentrate in Europe to a much greater degree. And I think this could well happen this season. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, it really leaves it open. So uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to sit in defence in that regard. Um, I, I think Bayern and Liverpool are Europe's best teams. But as the Champions League has proven for actually most of its history up until recently, and even though it's supposed to crown Europe's best team, it actually very rarely does that. It's often just Europe's, looking, I don't want to say luckiest big team, but a big team who've had a lot of the breaks and found form at the right time. And I think this season will return to that. Yeah, your sitting on the fence has made us all uh, even more interested in following the Champions League this season. Thank you very much, Miguel. It's a real pleasure. No problem. Cheers, guys.
The drama in La Liga is all about Barcelona this year. Well, not just Barcelona, one particular player. I think it's safe to say that they've been through something of an evolution. And it's great that we've got our own Charles Darwin with us today to talk about that <laughs> evolutionary period. David Cartledge. <laughs> hey, guys. Nice to join you. You see what I did there, didn't you? <laughs> One of the highlights of this year's OTC for me, in any case. So oh, oh, what is going on at Barcelona and what's going on with Messi? Why is he not playing in the Premier League? or at least in Ligue 1 in France. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a little bit of a, I think there's a bit of fright from Messi. I think this it was all finally happening. Um the, the wheels were in motion. It wasn't just talk. Um and then I think at the last minute he he decided against it. Gave Barcelona the benefit of the doubt and is going to review things again when he is free to talk to teams. Um and I think we, we're going to be have to do this all again, basically. That's the thing, David, isn't it? To think that Messi nearly leaving is probably not the worst thing to have happened. To, well, it's definitely not the best, worst thing to have happened to Barcelona this season. I mean, the, the interview he did with Ruben Uria is the most extraordinary interview uh, for me of this or any other calendar year in the... He came out and said that he was staying at Barcelona, but made everyone feel terrible about it in the time. And they probably felt worse at the end of that interview about his situation with Barcelona than they did at the beginning. But let's let's go back a, a little bit further. Um, there's losing the title. Um, there's the... I suppose if we go right back to the beginning of, of, of 2020, uh, there's... Um, Ernesto Valverde moving on the, the the worst bit on the pitch is the 8-2 to Bayern which I suppose for you as someone who watches La Liga very closely must be a moment of validation the moment when the rest of the world realises that you're not exaggerating how bad it is at Barcelona um, which of those moments do you want to start with? It's hard to say because it has just been a, a gradual process of, of Barca in decline to where they are now today, where they do just look like any other team. They, which is, you know, which is a damning, I think, a damning indictment of Barcelona considering the pedestal that they put themselves upon. But I think it was the big, I think it was the night against Bayern was, was the one for me. That, and I think for everybody that really brought everything to the fore. It had shades of when um, when Pep, of course, bowed out when it looked like Barcelona hadn't really developed, when they looked like they were all technique. Um, they hadn't really developed, I think, as a physical team, whereas Bayern had, had gone that way where they were technique and um, physicality. And it showed that Barcelona were, were well off what the very top teams were now. But in its way, I mean, this 8-2 was a, a worse humiliation than the the double humiliation in the semi-final in, in, in 2013. I mean, then it looked like Messi was flagging, that Messi needed yeah. propping up, really. And, th and that's what they, they did, really, wasn't it? They went and got Suarez and, and Neymar. But this time is different. Because of what's happening off the pitch, there is no quick fix, is there? And mm. if Messi stays, and of course, various presidential candidates like Victor Font, and uh, Juan Laporta, who might come back, are, are talking about, in 2021, if I become president, 
I'm I'm going to be the man to make Messi stay. But one, you have to ask, does he want to? Because whatever happens, it doesn't promise if he stays to be a particularly successful last few years to his tenure at Barcelona slash career. Secondly, is it is it mm-hmm. what Barcelona needs? And has 2020 shifted perception in that sense? Yeah, I think I think in a sense it would help Barcelona. It is the the unthinkable, you know. Do Barcelona move on from Messi? Um, they probably had a day in mind when they thought every he would bow out, maybe at the top, win the last Champions League with them, and then maybe go off into the sunset and play out in Argentina. But it's not going to end that way, no matter what. Now it's not going to end in a nice manner. There's always always going to be this chapter, and you do look at whether you know the, the financial burden that Messi is now. Um, you, you know he's He's, it's making the team not able to develop in, in, a, in a new direction, I think. And I think you also look at how he plays as well. He doesn't play how he used to be, and but the team is still set up like it used to be. And it needed to evolve. It needs to evolve. And it's not doing that right now with Messi. So, so it, in a way, they do need to move on from him. But at the same time, you do wonder... Are they still going to be able to attract the the big players? You know, if Messi did move on, is that something they're going to be able to do? Are people going to say, is Barcelona that appealing anymore? Messi's such a big factor. Everybody wants to play with him. Everybody wants maybe a year, a few months even, just to say, oh, I played alongside Lionel Messi. Yeah, um, I wonder, and there's lots of questions to ask, but I'll try and get in a double question, if I may. I wonder who's going to last the longest at Barca. Is it Lionel Messi or Ronald Koeman? But also, how different would this have been? How different would Barcelona's fortunes have been and the fortunes of Lionel Messi have been if they weren't playing behind closed doors at the Camp Nou? Yeah, um, to your first question, I think he's definitely going to outlast Koeman because I'm in the camp of not thinking that Koeman will see the season out with Barcelona. I think it's. I think the situation is that bad when you when you look at the stories that are now emerging um, from the dressing room of a, of a ruptured dressing room and different little cliques there. That's bad. That goes back to old Barca when there was cliques in the dressing room. The people used to say the Brazilians used to hang out together in the Ronaldinho area. The the Portuguese speakers, Deco, they used to be called the black sheep. Um, and and you know you almost get a sense of that coming back. Um, secondly, I think that the, the Fans, the supporters, the, the socios, they will always back Messi no matter what. The, the area would have been directed towards Bartomeu and I think even other players. You could have seen other players getting booed, but never Messi. I think you know he's the he's the golden child, the prodigal son there. He, he will never, ever have any criticism, I think, on a widespread level directed towards him. It would be minimal dissent, I think, against him. Should he have thought about saving his legacy sooner? do you think? Because before it got anywhere near this bad, David, there was a lot of hand-wringing in Barcelona about were they wasting, certainly with the way the board was running the club, because what's what's happened with Bartomeu? I mean, it's come to a head this year, but it's been bubbling for a long time. You could say it's been bubbling since the Rosé period and all the scandal over over Neymar. Um, and Barcelona has been an intermittently very, very poorly run club, which I, th- I think we can over- overlook for, for, for well, well, decades, really. Um, should Messi be held a little bit responsible because if we talk about his his legacy's assured in one sense, but if it's all fading out, um, should he have taken the bull by the horns a little bit earlier? Do you think? I one hundred percent agree. I think he should have rattled the club a long, long time ago. 
But the key difference is they were always being run badly. There was always these things going around the, behind the scenes. You know, you bring it up perfectly. The, the Neymar deal, the, 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 the odd transactions through uh, the, what, what was going on in Brazil, through agents and such. Um, you know, that, they were always being badly run. But on the pitch, they were still a good team. Under Luis Enrique, uh, they still managed to be a very, very good team. Neymar helped them prop it up. And then I think once the pieces started to fall on the field, they weren't playing as well. That's when Messi started to see, all right, we, we can't paper over this anymore. And that's when the cracks, that, uh, not even cracks, just seismic, seismic, um, you know, eruptions that they had in the grounds there at the Barcelona that changed things. And that's when he was forced into action. But I absolutely agree with you. He should have done this. I think a long, long time ago, three or four years ago, just because something isn't visibly broke doesn't mean there, you know, that there are still aspects that shouldn't, you know, not be I mean, fixed. Could he have spoken to Pep Guardiola more? Because Guardiola, funnily enough, when he left Barcelona, he found that as a, you know, not just a symbol of FC Barcelona, but a, a symbol of the Catalan nation, it had all been piled on him. And what he loved so much about being Bayern coach, for example, after he'd had his year off playing chess with Gary Kasparov and swanning around NYC and all the rest of it, was the fact that when he went to Bayern, he was just the coach. He could just deal with the players. And now Messi's finding what a responsibility it is to be the main guy at Barcelona. Yeah, um, funnily enough, um, Andoni Zubizarreta said something quite similar, actually, when he went out the spotlight. Um, of course, he had a time as sporting director of Barcelona, so he was heavily involved. And he always brought up the intense politics of the club. And when he moved away, he said he, he didn't feel it so much. It was a, a relief of sorts. Um, and and as, as you'll know, Andy, he went somewhere high pressure like Marseille, which has its own little intangibles there. But he still managed to deal with it because um, it was just so unlike the situation of Barcelona. If I was Messi, and look, hindsight's a great thing, I would have followed Pep. Pep was clearly, them two to each, each other were there, each other's muse. I would have, if I'm Messi, follow Pep wherever he goes. Absolutely. Well, you never know. That might still happen, you know. <laughs> hold, hold that one for a moment or two. I wonder whether the, uh, the troubles of, and perhaps demise, you might want to stretch the word to that level, of Barcelona this year has been tempered by the fact that their great rivals Real Madrid have you know hit and missed uh, quite a few times and they seem to be finding form at the moment but um, they've had a suttering year I think it's fair to say yeah absolutely um, I think it could get as bad as as Real Madrid the worst Real Madrid in years still winning something and Barcelona at their worst in years as well but they might end up winning nothing they lose another coach and Koeman. They have to go back to the drawing board there and Messi goes. That would be absolute worst case scenario. Um, it's very, very difficult to see them winning anything at any level, I think, while they are right now. I think Koeman is the wrong man for the job. I think Messi um, is in the wrong place right now for where he's at in his career. And there's not many positives to bring out of this situation. Y acaba la derecha para Xavi. Asistencia de Xavi. Mesca para derecha para Messi. Messi, 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 Messi. Inmens Messi. Ancara Messi, Ancara Messi. Ancara Messi, 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 so, great thing uh, about on the continent, uh, Andy, is that we, we've got the best pundit when it comes to Italy, I think it's fair to say, wouldn't you? 
Yes, we do. The one and only Nikki Bandini. Hello. Hello. Strange seeing you on virtual Zoom instead of being in person, but lovely to see you both at Christmas time. Likewise. Indeed, indeed. Christmas, very important in Italy, but (laughs) what a season and a year it's been in Italy. Not necessarily for on-the-pitch reasons, but... Well, let's focus on Napoli, because I think that's the centre of our attention for this conversation. What a year they've had. Yeah, um, I think one of sort of a whole heap of, of fascinating stories in Italy, but I think the emotional roller coaster that perhaps Napoli have been on when you think it was not actually this year, but just the very end of last year when they parted ways with Carlo, Carlo Ancelotti and then Gennaro Gattuso comes in as manager and a lot of uncertainty, frankly, about what sort of manager he was going to be and, and what this meant for the, the direction the club was taking. But since then, I think the, the football club has been on a fairly steady upwards trajectory under Gattuso. They've also gone out and bloke, broken their club record um, transfer uh, signing to get Victor Osimhen in the summer. And then, of course, the much sadder note of, of Diego Maradona passing away and what that means for, for Naples as a city and Napoli, I guess, um, as a football culture and, and what he means in the history of that club. Nicky, we'll get to Maradona, of, of, of course. You know, it's the biggest story in, in, in football this year, arguably. But if, if we look at Gattuso... Um, People have an idea of him as a certain type of coach that is very attached to what he is as a player, as uh, a battler, as someone who's heart first. But in fact, he's shown a lot of smarts this year. And the place that he inherited Napoli in was not an easy place. It wasn't a happy club behind the scenes, even though they qualified for the last 16 of the Champions League. It looked like Dries Mertens was going to go with his contract running out before he got the chance to beat um, Maradona's and Marek Hamzik's uh, goal records. And, and, and now happily he stayed and he is the top scorer in, in the club's history. Is Gattuso a lot more skilled and adroit than people give him credit for? I think he's certainly more nuanced than people give him credit for. I think there's this sort of desire to see Gattuso as... Um, the same uh, character almost, and it is a character, it feels like, rather than a real person that he was imagined to be as a footballer, which is someone who's just a battler, someone who just works hard and, and gets places by being willing to put in the extra graft, I guess. And I think that certainly was the image that was sold of him, for instance, when he was manager of Milan. He's not completely lost that side to himself. I think about... Um, after they lost at home to to Milan. In fact, there was this sort of quite tense scene, even this November um, with uh, Gattuso. There was a bit of a disagreement between uh, the club's official line and some of the reporting that came out about quite sort of how much of a a head-to-head there had been between Gattuso and some of the players in the changing rooms. But he came out afterwards and said, basically, you know, I've I've had enough of these little professors and we need to work harder. So he does have that. But then you look at the very next game, Napoli, which is against Roma. And I thought that was a game where you saw completely the other side of him. Maybe they did 
work harder in that next game. Maybe they did take on board some of what he said, but they also played a really nuanced, smart, tactical game against Roma, who have been playing in these two much deeper banks this season under Paolo Fonseca, trying to sort of no longer press high and just give you no space to operate in. Um, and so uh, Gattuso adapted what he was doing and he had Diego Demme come into the team and sit in this spot between his own midfield and defence that drew players on from the midfield because Edin Dzeko wasn't doing a very good job of, tra- of tracking back onto him. So he does adjust what he's doing from game to game. He does come up with these little wrinkles and, and do things that are specifically designed to counter different teams, I would say. So he's got a lot more to him than just the bluster. He hasn't lost that persona of being a bit gruff and we need to work harder. He had a quite um, I thought slightly ridiculous um, comment just the other day um, after Napoli lost to Inter and, and uh, Lorenzo Insigne was sent off for talking back to a referee and he had a bit of a, oh, I can't believe football's like this nowadays. And it, when I was in England, no one would even have bashed an eyelid at something like this. <laughs> but at the same time, just like a week before that, uh, Gattuso was talking in a calmer moment, in a moment where he wasn't worked up right after a game about um, man management of individual players. And he was talking about um, this idea that when he was uh, a player himself, you could treat players differently to how you did now. And he actually likened it to being a parent. He said, you can't be a father today and treat your kids the same way that you were treated because kids have a different reality to the reality that you grew up in and you can't expect them to react the same way as you would have done. So it's the same for footballers. And I think that that level of awareness, frankly, I've seen missing in managers who are supposedly far more uh, deep thinkers than him. So I think he definitely is a man who has nuance in the way that he sees the world. That is deep, actually. Yeah, I'll I'll remember that as well. I wish my father had remembered that, but there you go. Um, The the Serie A seems to be like a lot of leagues in this particular uh, year because of the obvious pandemic reasons and so on. seems to be much more open than normal. seems to be a league where anybody can beat anybody, but it does seem as if Napoli has benefited more than most from their openness. Yeah, I mean, as we're speaking right now, um, Napoli have, I think the the standings have them with eight wins and four losses this season, which is already pretty good. But actually one of those losses was for a game against Juventus that didn't get played. That was another whole story in this very eventful year for, for Napoli. They didn't travel to an away game against Juventus. Um, in their version of events because the local health authority told them they couldn't because of COVID. The football authority said, look, we have our protocols, you can travel. And that is still um, being appealed into the, um, uh, into the regular courts. The sporting courts have made their verdict, but the regular courts will give theirs. So in fact, Napoli have only lost three times in, in the 11 games they've played rather than four in 12. And if you take away the point deduction they got for that game, they didn't just get handed a loss, they got given a one point deduction. They'd be level with Juventus right now. So on-pitch results this season have been really strong. And I think that, again, to talk about um, 
Gattuso's ability to blend. You've seen different players come into the side this season. Ossiman at the beginning of the season was a revelation for me. I thought he was fantastic. But since he's been out, the attack has adapted again. You've seen Mertens play more through the middle. You've seen a different style of attacking. Now they've had more injuries, more, more people missing. And Andrea Petania's come in, who again is a very different model of centre-forward. But they're, they're making it work so far. There's a lot of season ahead, and I think that needs to be remembered. But I think Napoli very clearly in terms of points per game on an upwards trajectory from when he first picked them up, which was a team somewhat in disarray at the end of last year. And Nicky, they've spruced the stadium up um, towards the end of last year. And now it's got a different name as well. Um, it's called the Stadio Diego Armando Maradona um, after the, 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 the sad death of um, El Diego. What really has been the atmosphere around the club? We know what he meant to the club, but what has been the atmosphere around the club and the city following his passing? And how do you think it's going to condition the rest of the season for them? I think, well, before you mentioned the game, but it's, it's you know, it couldn't be separated the fact that the first game after he died, they went and beat Roma 4-0. I mean, they really thumped them. Um, and uh, I think there certainly was an emotional wave that they were on right away. I don't know the strip. Like that. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Beautiful strip this season. They, um, this sort of blended Argentina, uh, Maradona inspired kit, which actually was in the works before Maradona died. It was something they were hoping to do in co- collaboration with him in celebration of him. But I think it's certainly a, a beautiful kit. Um, and, uh, it's, I don't know if, if on a week to week basis, going forward all through the season, you can assume that Maradona's um, passing is going to uh, continue to motivate them to try harder. I think this team was already competing for something. It was already trying to get back into the Champions League, maybe even put itself into this uh, title conversation this season. So I don't know if they needed that lift. The city as a whole, I think it will be a very... I don't know if it's even about time, actually. I was about to say a very long time before Maradona's death doesn't feel relevant to Naples because I think Maradona will always be relevant in Naples. I think if you spend time there, it's a thing that was very well summed up, I thought, by Ed Fulaimi in a, um, an obituary for The Guardian where he talked about Naples as a pagan city that has all these icons that are um, semi-religious. And Maradona, even in life, was this semi-religious figure in um in Naples, you would see shrines to him on street corners, some of them even with a halo. And this idea of him as being someone who is much more than a, a footballer. And look, he brought them two um, Serie A titles, but he was much more than a footballer, was already present. And I think now in, in, in death, it's only going to be more present. So for, for the city as a whole, the mourning continues, I would say at this point. And at some point that will transition to something beyond mourning which is a, a celebration and a, a, a memory of of this great player that again is almost spiritual in Naples it's it's more than just a footballer it's something embedded in the soul of the city and arguably he was more or more greatly mourned and missed in Naples than he was in Argentina I mean it's a difficult thing to say because of course it means a lot to people in Argentina but the way that the people in Naples reacted to his death just seemed to take it to another level. And when you say that he continues to be mourned there, arguably Argentina has moved on, whereas people, you know, you see from all the um, 
graffiti or the murals and the sentiments and like the religious aspect that you talk of, which perhaps wasn't there in Argentina. It's profound, I think, that this footballer who won the World Cup for his country almost single-handedly is more revered for what he did for his club side. Well, if you think that the famous graffiti after he passed away in Naples, which was put on the wall of a cemetery, was um, you don't know what you're missing to the people in the cemetery. And the response graffiti that came up the very next day was who said we missed it. So I think there's there's always going to be this feeling in Naples that, um, again, is tied together in, in religion and spirituality. But I don't think in, in the hearts of a lot of Neapolitans, Maradona has really gone, gone. He's just gone to the next place. So thank you to everybody for this really festive and special edition of On the Continent. Andy, what a year it's been. I have to thank you as well, mate, because you've been part of the you know making of this great podcast as well. Likewise, and what a pleasure it has been to work with you again in 2020, Dotton, and more of the same next year. Well, and thanks to everybody who makes this podcast such a success. Remember, you can get in touch at any time, otc at footballramble.com, otc at footballramble.com for everything you need to know about European football. And I reckon 2021 is going to be even more dramatic in European football than 2020 has been, if it's that possible, if it's possible. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network.